Welcome to Why Gifts Matter from the Core Gift Institute, a series of conversations spanning helping professions, spiritual traditions, and community encouragers who believe that knowing your gifts and giving them is an essential part of living a full life and creating healthy communities. Find out more about us at www.coregift.org. Hi, I'm Bruce Anderson from the Core Gift Institute. In this episode of Why Gifts Matter, we're talking with Nikki Wilkes, the Executive Director of the Journeyman Institute. Nikki is an example of a life that's taken many twists and turns. He did both his undergraduate and graduate education in business and has ended up being a public school teacher and co-founder with Alex Craighead of the Journeyman Institute on Vashon Island near Seattle. Journeyman has a variety of programs that help young people to discover and claim their natural identity, as well as engage older people in opportunities to learn mentoring and how to create the conditions for young people to thrive. Nikki's a hungry learner. He's constantly scouting the landscape for ideas and practices that focus on helping young people. He's a student of ancient indigenous ritual and modern theories of education and neurosciences, and his focus is on creating innovative strategies that honor and combine both the old and the new. In his other employment as a school teacher, Nicky's acutely aware that schools are mostly about, as he says, filling the cup and creating conformity rather than bringing out the natural identity and gifts in students. He laments this focus on success rather than getting at the core of students' identities so they can become who they are meant to be. Uh, it's very clear to me that a lot of us adults in the lives of youth are concerned with what our kids or the youth in the, today are going to do. What are you going to do when you grow up? And if there's one way to tick off a teenager these days, it would be to probably ask them that question a few times a week uh, because they're inheriting a mess and uh, very seldom are people uh, giving them space to figure out first who they are as a person. A believer in the interconnection between nature, humans, and spirituality, he describes gifts as what's left after everything else is peeled away and as a powerful antidote to the condition of the world right now. The nature still feels present. I feel like our gifts are, are the natural essence of our spirit and, and when applied, they are also nature's answer to the problems that culture seems to be uh, struggling with right now. All through this conversation, you'll notice that Nikki is using his gift, which he describes as seeing through the bullshit. He has a keen eye for authenticity, doesn't back away from difficult conversations, and lets us see inside the developmental process that has led to the very successful Journeyman Institute. Let's talk to Nikki. Well, good afternoon, Nikki. Sitting here with our cups of tea on a rainy afternoon, so I'm looking forward to talking with you a little bit about your work and how it intersects with this idea of gifts, which I know it does in quite a few ways. So, can we can we start just by you talking a little bit about um, the work you're doing that's related to gifts? Absolutely. So, uh, my primary hat that I'm wearing these days is as a lead guide and facilitator and executive director at Journeyman Institute. Uh, Journeyman is primarily engaged in youth rites of passage and mentoring programs. And so I think at its core, uh, you know, our organization's task is to provide spaces for 
young folks to glimpse the gifts within them and uh, for us to nurture uh, and tease out uh, those uh, innate qualities and, and kind of fundamental offerings to the world over time. Uh, huge interaction and inter intersection, I would say, with uh, the work of Core Gift. And um, I can say it, it's a blessing and an honor to be back here in your space. It's the last time I was here. I uh, was actually for your Core Gift facilitator training. So thanks for having me back. Yeah, glad to be here. So folks who aren't aware of um, all the different things Journeyman does, can you kind of sum up the, the three or four or five kind of main um, pieces of your work? Absolutely. Uh, Journeyman, I, I like to think Journeyman has about three primary branches of our, of our work right now. Uh, first and foremost is the uh, Rites of Passage programs that we host mostly in the spring and summertime. So these usually uh, consist of a multi-day, uh, fully nature-immersive uh, experience for young folks. Uh, some of them involve families, so we work with fathers and sons on some camps, and a lot of them are for specific ages and stages. Uh, those range from about age 10 all the way up through young adulthood, and from like one night all the way up to 10 nights uh, out in nature. Um, branch two would be our in-school mentoring circles. So we use a, a form of group communication and community building, sometimes called the way of counsel, uh, also called circle process or the circle way, depending on the lineage. Uh, but we use this form in schools during the school day and after school sometimes. And we invite boys from uh, different age groups to uh, into these circles to begin processing their life experiences in a supportive and open, non-judgmental way. Um, this is a pretty beautiful program in that we get a lot of investment and contributions from adult mentors who show up as participants um, and share their stories and build healthy relationships with the young folks uh, in the community. Branch three would be our training programs. So right now we have two training tracks for adults. Uh, one is in our rites of passage methodology for folks who want to go and participate in one of our spring or summertime rites of passage programs, or who are interested and curious about deploying uh, meaningful modern rites of passages in their own communities, um, we provide training in that area. And the other one is circle facilitation. So this is really geared for folks who want to show up uh, in our in-school mentoring groups or are interested in using the way of counsel or circle process as a professional or in their personal lives. So, rites of passage um, has a lot of um, variable definitions. So, when you use it in the context of your work, what does that what does that word mean? That phrase mean? Yeah, to us, a rite of passage is a significant uh, marker in one's life that uh, signals uh, a life transition. And the word rite uh, derives a lot of its meaning from the same word as ritual. And for us, that means it's an intentional uh, ceremonial act, and it has meaning for folks. Um, some rites of passage, uh, you know, in our society these days aren't really intentional, and they don't have some of the um, necessary elements that I would say to uh, support healthy and sustained change in people and communities. And so for us, there's some important stages and key elements that we embed in all of our experiences. Um, the three stages that we identify, and these are very, very loose stages that um, we've kind of inherited from different teachings, but first and foremost, a man named Arnold Van Gennep 
who uh, was probably one of the first uh, Western folks to go around to a lot of different indigenous communities and, and ask the question, well, what are they doing? Uh, what are they doing differently in particular in human development work? And he identified uh, these three key stages, one being separation, uh, and usually that involves separation from the culture, from the known world, in other words. Uh, stage two would be the threshold, uh, sometimes also called the liminal space, the time between worlds. And stage three is incorporation or integration. And for us, this is the return home, and I would argue the most important part of our work. Uh, I like to say that in our culture, we have plenty of cheap thrills and easy dopamine hits, and peak experiences are easy to come by. Uh, you know, I can get on my phone and have something Amazon delivered in an hour if I want to. And young folks get this all the time with, you know, stimulants and, you know, phone apps and all these different sensory overload things. Uh, but integrating these peak experiences, I think, is where the challenge is, and that's where a huge focus of our work is, uh, supporting the experience. Um, so within those three stages, there's also you know, kind of a sublayer of these four elements. And one of our key mentors in this work, a man named Arna Rubenstein, uh, who currently heads the Rites of Passage Institute in Australia, he helped us uh, kind of embed some of these elements in a lot of our programs. Uh, one of them is story. So for us, story is, is kind of the portal into our own lives and also into the, the deeper myths and mysteries of culture. Uh, they weave, you know, us into our own personal narrative and also invite us into community. So story is uh, a huge piece of our Rites of Passage programs. Um, number two is challenge, uh, especially particular in the uh, male Rites of Passage. Um, not that all of this is gendered, but in our research and in our experience, um, male-identified folks or, or more masculine-identified folks um, often respond very positively to healthy challenge integrated into the rite of passage experience. And so for us, uh, we do this in a way that minimizes physical risk. Uh, back in the day from our own collective history, but also um, you know, in some other intact cultures, there's a huge physical risk in rites of passage. Maybe killing a lion or jumping off of a cliff with vines tied to your ankles. Um, and for us, you know, not a lot of moms or dads would be supportive of us sending their children out to kill a whale in a canoe or um, try to slay a lion with a club. So we facilitate, you know, non-physical dangerous risk, and a lot of this is social-emotional, um, talking about our feelings and crying in front of other boys and men, and some of these things that, uh, you know, they have a challenge element built in, but they're not putting us in a lot of physical danger. Mm -hmm. um, another really important piece for us is honoring. And this is really where I see the intersection with the gift. So for us, honoring is the process by which we recognize and celebrate the gift and uh, the folks in our communities. Um, this, probably above all else, is one of the most beautiful parts of our experience because most of the young folks who come through our programs have never really been acknowledged for their gifts. They get complimented and they get celebrated for superficial things that they can't control, like the way they look or the way their body is, or how athletic they are, or how smart they are. Um, but rarely do they have people who can and do see underneath those things into the fundamental qualities that um, you and I would call a gift. So where did gifts go in school systems? If it's not a common part, I mean, the most of the young people you're dealing with are school-age people, and they're going to school, and you're saying they 
they don't have that experience of being seen for something beyond their physical prowess or their looks or their smarts. So where did gifts go? Why in, why in the school district you work in is it, is it, it just feels like it's a lost idea. Hmm. Yeah, that is a, that's an important question for us to sit with uh, as the adults in the village. And one of the other hats I wear is a teacher. I, I go to high school almost every day and you know, I'm sitting in classrooms um, with high school students and I, I don't know that I can give uh, a historically accurate answer, but I can speak from my experience as a teacher now and, and having been a student not that long ago that um, what it feels like in a traditional public school in the U.S. today is that we are still seeing the effects of designing an education system around industrial production. Uh, I don't think that there was a lot of room or need for gifts uh, in the 18th and 19th centuries when we were really focused on, um, you know, efficiencies of scale and production and, you know, winning these wars of resources and looking at human beings like cogs in the machine. Um, there wasn't a lot of space for gifts. We didn't need entrepreneurship. We didn't need uh, these individual creative uh, generative aspects of humanity in the same way that I think our current problems of today are really beckoning for. So in a sense, I, I think a lot of it, it comes down to the design of the system and what it was really designed for and, and not designed for. Uh, but I have to laugh when I think about, again, the root of the word, uh, education, taking a page, I think, out of Michael Mead's book when I heard him remind us all that the root of that word is to to bring out that which is within. Uh, I think it, I think it's a Latin, maybe it's Greek, but educare. Mm -hmm. And we're not really doing that in the public school system anymore. We're, we're trying to fill the cup and, you know, create conformity in, in most of the subject areas as opposed to drawing out that unique aspect of the individual. So in trying to re rewrite the ship a little bit, and and reclaim some focus on honoring and gifts. How does your how does your organization go about doing that? Hmm. Yeah. First and foremost, we don't implement rules. It's very important in working with uh, boys in particular, and a lot of the guys we get are are high, high flyers in the discipline system, both in school sometimes, uh, run-ins with the law. So the first thing we do is we don't talk about rules. We don't have rules in our programs. We have agreements. And agreements are co-created as a community. So some of them are non-negotiable. And some people might argue like, hey, that sounds like a rule. And I would agree. But we don't call them rules. And we have a full consensus model for buy-in. So we don't run programs for people who don't want to be there. Um, sometimes there's a reluctance where a parent or someone else really wants a young person to be involved. But... Uh, we have to be able to have a conversation with that young person and, and they have to, by their own agency, choose to be a part of this. Um, and that's a big shift. You know, um, compulsory education is the norm now. And I talk to a lot of young people who they want nothing to do with the school system and yet they don't have a choice. Um, for our experiences, whether it's the in-school mentorship or the rites of passage, uh, they are opting into the experience and fundamentally that shifts our capacity to support transformation. Um, no amount of willpower of a mentor or a teacher can uh, just change somebody. I can't just go and make someone different purely by my own accord. 
uh, at my best, I can tend to the soil around somebody, uh, just like a gardener, and, and create the conditions for change. But ultimately, you know, that, that requires their buy-in and it requires their full participation and engagement to happen. Uh, so I think that's a huge piece alone. It's just that, that shift in mentality and, and how we kind of create that engagement and buy-in and, and use the agency of young people's desire for something different and use that as kind of a motive force for the rest of our work together. Mm-hmm. So then, so you, so you use this idea of consensus and agreements rather than rules, and that creates an opening for engagement. And then, what's the what's the next what's the next kind of stage? How do you how do you help a young person begin to see who they are? What are the strategies that you use? Hmm. Yeah. Key strategies for us, uh, I would say, are using forms that invite vulnerability and self reflection. So, as I mentioned before, uh, our in school mentoring model uses primarily the way of counsel. And this same form is embedded into the rites of passage experience where we sit in a circle, uh, we have a set of agreements, we have a talking piece, and through guided prompts and uh, different modifications of this form, participants are invited through their own storytelling to self-reflect and become more aware of their identity. Um, For us, identity is the cornerstone of the rest of everything that we do. So... Uh, It's very clear to me that a lot of us adults in the lives of youth are concerned with what our kids or the youth today are going to do. What are you going to do when you grow up? And if there's one way to tick off a teenager these days, it would be to probably ask them that question a few times a week uh, because they're inheriting a mess and uh, very seldom are people uh, giving them space to figure out first who they are as a person. Um, One of my responses uh, to parents and and folks who are engaged in youth work when they ask, you know, well, how do we get young folks motivated around having a clear purpose for their lives is to answer with identity precedes purpose. I can't go out and do if I don't first know where I am and who, Mm -hmm. and who I am. And so a tremendous amount of our first time together in programs and even in our circles is looking at the fundamental sense of identity that young people have. From that place, we can begin to unpack what is conditioning and what is, uh, I would say, authentic. Um, and, and that <laughs> carries us through a tremendous part of our work because, as we know, culture conditions us and it forms so much of our identity. Uh, but underneath all of that, I think, is where those seeds of the gift are really kind of brewing. So as part of the different... Um, um, groups and activities and, and um, gatherings that you do. If I was if I was 15 years old and I was a part of something you're doing, would I would I um, after a while walk walk away thinking or clearer about well these are two or three or four or five of my gifts. These these form a real kind of core piece of my identity. Would I have something that I could describe as gifts as a result of being with you? Hmm. I'd say at 15, it would be uh, that would be a a very a very positive and uh, less than the majority take home, particularly because of uh, the amount of time that it takes to nurture these and identify these. Um, and so, uh, I'll give some context, which is uh, our our rite of passage program for teens. The the kind of lowest age that that 
seems to be appropriate for through the past years of, of running it is about 15. Uh, we've had some 14 year olds go on it and the average age tends to be about 17, mm -hmm. 16, 17. And it's rare that a 14 year old comes in with the, uh, I think with the, the knowing and the, the knowing of the need that they need to walk away with something from it. So it's not that anything negative really happens from it, but it's, it's uncommon that they would come back with like a really clear sense of, mm -hmm. of those gifts. Mm -hmm. Um, I think at the end of that program, the mentors and the staff could see it, but I don't know that it would be fully recognized and, and what I would call claimed by the young person. Um, but that program, the quest, the keystone of that is really for the young folks to come home with a claiming statement. And this is something that we work with them actually through hours, uh, each one-on-one -on -one and also in group to develop this statement that is true for them in their own words through a process and series of questioning. Um, and it's an authentic statement of their identity that they hold and walk with and can be a bit of a foundation for them to begin to build a more authentic identity as a young adult. So everyone walking home from that program will have one, but I think it's most powerful and most, uh, I want to say effective for the guys who are a little bit older and are mm -hmm. ready to really implement that into their lives and something. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it's as, it's as um, accurate of a descriptor as as they can develop at, at a certain point in their lives about who they are. Exactly. And it has, and, and there's different, I haven't seen one, so forgive the questions, but there's different pieces to it. My, you know, my name is Bruce, and, and I am this, and I am that. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, an example might be, uh, I am a, a young man who loves himself, expresses his emotions, and takes care of his responsibilities. Mm -hmm. And for us, that might sound simple, like, wow, what's, what's the magic in that? Um, and I, I hear that, and I, I would urge all of us to consider the stories that we were telling ourselves as teens. Like, what were the rep repetitive mental messages that we were feeding ourselves as teenagers? Uh, and if that was on repeat in our brain, if that was kind of the, the key story that we would remind ourselves of when we were feeling down or depressed or unmotivated, or the statement that we could give to our family or community when they asked who we were, uh, how might that have shifted? Um, there's a really, I think a really transformational thing when a young person doesn't just claim it for themselves, but they can actually look their dad in the eye and tell them, mm -hmm. I'm a young man mm -hmm. who's going to take care of his responsibilities. And for that to be held and accepted. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I know that didn't happen for me. Mm -hmm. I was busy getting in as much trouble as I could possibly get in <laughs> and hiding it from everyone. Yeah. So, um, what about what a little bit about you? So, if, uh, you you've you've had a lot of chance to reflect on some of your own gifts. So, can you can you describe a, a gift or two that you that that matters to you? That's kind of central to who you who you are. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm remembering a phrase that came up in my first core gift interview, but uh, I have a gift of seeing through the bullshit, mm -hmm. um, and there is there has always been a, a capacity in me to pierce the veil of of illusion, mm -hmm. and at times it's quite uncomfortable for folks, even myself included, and and uh, 
one of my key challenges, I think, in, in adolescence and even young adulthood was uh, accepting that. And so for a long time, I, I used different coping strategies to try to numb the, the part of me that knew that something else was trying to come through. And at times that was drugs, at times it was alcohol, at times it was frivolous relationships or superficial mm-hmm. you know, stimulants of sorts. Um, but that gift, I think above all, is also what, what kind of guides a lot of this work. Uh, there is a need to be able to see through layers in working with young folks who can't see it for themselves yet. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's a gift that I, I would say I use every day as a teacher, mm-hmm. as a mentor, and even now as a father. Mm-hmm. So in that kind of general category, I'm smiling because in that general category of I think about that as being in the larger category of truth-finding kind of gifts or truth-seeing gifts. Yep. And of course, the shadow side of that is people with those kinds of gifts always think they know more of the truth than they actually know. <laughs> yes. <laughs> right? So there's a developmental process of, mm-hmm. of, of recognizing that. And so have you had any of that experience yourself? Oh my gosh, so much. You know, thankfully we have, we have a, like Facebook these days, which will remind us of things that we said 10 years ago. And sometimes I get those reminders through like something like Facebook or just a friend who's like, wow, you know, you've really changed. And I get that reflection. And I remember this very, uh, this very distinct phase of, of my late adolescence and early adulthood where I was so vehemently stubborn about my beliefs and a lot of the way that I saw the world. Not what I saw, but the way that I saw it that made me uh, too rigid to really see and, and empathize. So for me, the shadow side of that was was having to practice and really commit to empathy and a compassionate, soft side. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. thankfully, I think, you know, different life circumstances, like becoming a father and, and committing to be in a relationship with someone who's super empathetic and deeply compassionate, fundamentally, doesn't really have to try. That's just her design. Um, those things have really helped me soften that side and I think strengthen the gift, really strengthen that ability to more objectively see the truth instead of just my way of seeing it. Mm-hmm. So in your, in your um, organization, um, uh, tell me something related to this identity thing, related to these personal statements and helping young people know who they are. What's something that you're trying to get better at or something you're trying to learn? Every time I've talked to you, I walk away going, oh, Nikki's part of a learning organization, that there's always these things on the edge you're trying to figure out. So I'll bet listeners, just having listened to you for a bit now, would be interested in what what kind of the next generation of learning is that you're about now. Yeah, I love that question. To me, there's a an ongoing conversation within and without our organization of uh, what does organic growth look like? Uh, you know, I went to business school, like both undergrad and graduate, where the the motto is growth at all costs uh, and particularly not just growth but like exponential growth like if you're doing business right you're going to scale your business times 10 and then sell it or at least you know hire 10 times the amount of people and have them work under you and in this this type of work we've known that that model is not really it's not really in service to anything except for capitalism um, but there is a healthy type of growth and so we're sitting with the question of how to enroll the next wave of leaders in this work who want to uh, carry it forward in their own unique way and also uphold 
the core of the culture that we've created in the organization. Things like the rituals and the practices that really give the work its backbone. Uh, it's challenging to grow a culture outside of a, outside of a physical space. And so that's a key thing I think we're sitting with and we're learning how to do is to grow in a healthy way, in a way that's serving youth and communities, and also empowering people to show up and, and, and host and, and provide similar experiences in their own communities, uh, both near and far. Um, and there's another piece too around growth, which is meeting, uh, it's hitting a moving target. Uh, you know, in our, in our understanding, there are unique challenges facing uh, you, young people today, and particularly young males who are conditioned to not, you know, identify with their emotions, to bottle it up and fit this kind of archaic uh, image of, of manhood that might work for some folks, but ultimately doesn't work for a lot and um, doesn't always, uh, and I would say probably rarely, feels authentic for those who are performing it. So um, it's become clear that we are doing certain things really well. Uh, we get a lot of really positive feedback around the impact we're having on preteens and teens. And there's a lot of men who are involved who are uh, in their 30s and 40s and even elders. We have men in their like 60s and 70s who are on our elders council and uh, they are just getting so much out of this uh, process of rebuilding a village and being included, uh, but there's a gap, and the gap for us right now is particularly like men in their early to mid twenties, who uh, I would say aren't initiated into their life yet. They have not had an initiatory experience, and many of them are maybe living with their folks right now, and maybe they went to college, maybe not, but really are just kind of drifting. And uh, I just had a really beautiful conversation with a colleague recently who straight up was just like, what are we, what are we doing for these guys? You know, what are we doing for them? And uh, organizationally, we've designed a lot of our work around leadership potential and training adults who are already in a pretty solid spot in their life to show up in the lives of young people. Um, but I don't think we currently have a lot of resources dedicated to providing holing uh, experiences to, to support uh, really men in their extended adolescence or, or early, early adulthood to just get their feet on the ground in a, in a healthy social, emotional type of way. So they can, you know, eventually move into a more initiated version of their life where they're living with purpose. Mm -hmm. It's like that old therapist, you know, saying you can't take any, take, can't take somebody further than you've been yourself. My experience is showing up at a lot of events with you know, men in their, you know, men, you know, 30 to 50, and then, uh, you know, a ragtag assortment of younger people, is that many of the older people showing up aren't, uh, you know, are really showing up, if the truth be known, to try and figure out who they are. Mm. They're not really in a position to be able to help anybody else yet. Mm -hmm. um, and so I, I worry some about, uh, about that dynamic that happens when you, you get older guys showing up and because um, I think you can cause a lot of harm if you haven't figured it out yourself yep. you don't really have any business talking to a 16 year old about it you know? and I, I think to me that goes back to that issue of um, you know the idea of initiation and threshold is lost in an industrial culture yep. you know I didn't have any of those experiences when I was in school yep. 
And so I've seen that dynamic. And so I'm wondering how you protect against that or how you work with that idea. What happens when somebody shows up who's not developmentally, you just, you get it, you get this sense, oh, he's not ready yet. Mm -hmm. What, how do you handle that? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I think sometimes we even need to look in the mirror and be like, oh, I'm not ready today. <laughs> uh, and part of that accountability is that we, we have a, a, a distributed leadership model where we always have like several, at least two, but usually several guides on staff uh, who are tracking these types of things. So it's never just one person who's kind of responsible for a bunch of trainees or a bunch of youth. We, we really try to uh, prime the container by having several of us present, um, because let's face it, even you know, even those of us who who typically are ready and who are super well trained and have you know been through initiatory experiences, we have our off moments. Um, but a lot of these come down to key agreements. So in our mentor training, uh, for instance, we stress the importance of not giving advice. There is no part of our model that is about advice giving. That is just it's just not it's not what we do. It does come up, and a lot of older men in particular. Uh, unconsciously just go into that mode. Someone tells them the problem and they're like, oh, let me fix your problem. Here's what you should do, kid. And oh my gosh, there is no quicker way to get a group of teens to check out than go into lecture mode, especially as an older male. Uh, the dad archetype comes up and I, I think sadly there's such a fracture in the relationship between fathers and their children, not just boys, but uh, young women as well, because so often dads go unconsciously into their fix-it mode and start giving advice. And uh, one of the, you know, the flip side of that, the, the positive is the beauty that emerges when uh, you know, our mentors and our trainees begin to realize that the medicine is not in their advice. It's actually in their vulnerability and their story. And to me, it's a reminder of the human element of this work. When a young person can see someone who's older than them uh, vulnerably admitting that they're still in their journey and they don't have it all figured out, but they had this experience and it impacted them, uh, the youth can kind of extract the meaning from that. If there is something for them in that, they will then take it. Uh, but it's so different than when it's kind of uh, patriarchally kind of handed down or forced down upon them as this is what you got to do, this is the wisdom, this is the advice. Um, so it's definitely present in our training model, I think, to avoid it. And we do have some signals that we'll use sometimes in council if we if we feel people you know kind of venturing into that advice giving space, um, and we've also had to have some difficult conversations with folks who've you know kind of uh, placed themselves in a leadership role or, or volunteered for something, and you know we've noticed okay I don't know that they're quite ready for this yet, um, but our leadership path gives us several opportunities to see people in process before they would ever make it into a leadership role. And that's really important for safety. Uh, we, we wouldn't ever feel good about, you know, putting someone in, you know, the, the tender position of a psycho-spiritual container with young folks, particularly without them having been a participant first. So for us, adults that want to be involved, great, come, you are a volunteer participant first. After you glimpse the process and after our staff get to see how it goes, um, the process of invitations toward leadership come after that. God, it's such complicated work you're doing. When you really get into it, you know, it's just got so many layers, Nikki. Yeah. So, um, uh, just two questions left. One is, could you um, comment a little bit about, you know, to you, the 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 um, the 
the best thing to you about knowing some of your gifts and then and then the flip side of that what's the worst thing about knowing <laughs> some of your gifts Whew. the best thing about knowing some of my gifts uh, I would say is that every day I wake up I feel like I'm inching my way toward living in my genius zone and I've actually kind of always identified myself with being a bit of a slacker I don't like working that hard even though I tend to and for me, when I'm living in my gift or my genius zone, I don't have to work as hard. And so, you know, over time, I look back at my life over the past few years and, and I like to actually put a numerical score on the percentage of my pay or, or what earns me a living as coming from my genius zone. The amount of things that I do for money or to sustain my life and my family that ultimately feel like they're coming straight from my gifts. And over time, that's increasing, and my joy and my ease in life is increasing with that. Mm -hmm. um, right now, I'm, I'll give myself like an 82%, and that's, <laughs> that's uh, you know, something that I feel really good about and that yeah. the, the trend is still going up. Yeah. And there's still parts of my life that, you know, I kind of just got to do them, and they don't feel, uh, you know, they don't really feel like my, my gift or, or things that I even enjoy. Um, but it's important for me to note, like, it's not... For those who are like, oh, I wonder what that 18% is that you don't enjoy. It's not like chopping the firewood or bringing the water. I love that stuff. Uh, there's an element of, of the, you know, what some might call the mundane that is me living in my gift. And so many of those parts of, of my, my work as a human being bring me great joy and fulfillment. Um, but mostly it's, it's interfacing with the industrial culture. Mm -hmm. uh, that's really what I feel like that drains me and, and it's a necessary step in, in culture change is to have a foot in that world. Um, mm -hmm. And on the flip side, the worst part about knowing my gifts is um, I don't have the exact words from the quote, but there's a, a I'll, I'll paraphrase. And in short, you know, once you open your eyes to the truth, you can't go back to sleep. And there is a part of me that, um, sometimes feels the weight of the world on my shoulders and like I, I really can't drop anything and this shows up sometimes when you know just to give an example I have a young person who I'm working with and I know I know what they need I know what they don't have and uh, because I, I think because I've I've come to know my gifts and because I've come to orient my life around them I can't walk away from that anymore so there is a, a sense of duty that can sometimes feel like dread and sometimes feel like more than I can hold alone that uh, feels debilitating at times and even feels crippling. And it's in those moments when I remember or I have to remember to resource myself, uh, bring that to perhaps our council of elders, uh, bring it to my partner, uh, bring it to my colleague and co-pilot, um, Alex, or just some of my own uh, therapy, my own resources to really process. Uh, but I really feel that that stems also from the gift uh, is just the awareness that I, I can't stop, uh, that that's really what I'm here to do. And, and to be initiated into something is uh, certainly, certainly a blessing in its own right. And it also carries a tremendous sense of responsibility that can't really turn off. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So I want to do well, one thing just to close. Um, so just um, sit for a moment, just a moment quietly and take a few deep breaths. And what's the, 
What I want you to focus on is the word more than any that comes out when you think of the word gift. What's the word or phrase that comes out of you? Nature. And because? nature because to me the gift is what's left when all the conditioning is peeled away and the words authentic and the words innate and fundamental and even radical come up as as I've had to relearn what that word radical means both uh, extreme but also like root and basic uh, sort of has this dual meaning and and to me, a gift is, is radical because it's so fundamental and so basic. And yet, in our world, when we see and experience people living in their gift, it appears to be extreme. It appears to be so outside the norm that we often struggle to give context or reference and, and celebrate it for what it often is. Um, but nature still feels present. I feel like our gifts are are the natural essence of our spirit and, and when applied, they are also nature's answer to the problems that culture seems to be uh, struggling with right now. Mm. Oh, what a great way to end. Thank you. It's a blessing to have you part of our community. Thank you, Bruce. Blessing. Thanks, Nikki. Thank you for listening. To hear more podcasts, explore our gift library, or learn about our training opportunities, visit us at www.coregift.org.